Welcome to the hashtag Fairing Pod. At Fairing, people come first. My name is Zoya Mabuto Muguritwa, and I have the great pleasure to be having a conversation today where we will be discussing navigating your emotions when going through fertility treatment and infant loss. Very interesting topic. I'm glad to be joined in the conversation by Mandy Rodriguez, of course, who is a clinical psychologist uh, in private practice uh, working in Johannesburg. Really good to have you with us, Mandy, and welcome again. Thank you so much. It's good to be here. Wonderful. And Mandy, just to kick us off, tell us a little bit about yourself. And I think maybe even as you unpack, you know, what your occupation entails, make those linkages to the conversation we're going to be having today about fertility treatment and infant loss. I've been in private practice for 30 years. Of course, over those 30 years, I've worked in the public sector. I work with NGOs who focus on infant loss and fertility treatments. I counsel couples who are going through fertility treatment. And this is prior to them embarking on treatment during the pregnancy, and then unfortunately, one in four patients do experience infant loss. Mm. So it's the whole journey, and it all began when I had two of my own miscarriages, mm. and I had to do IVF or in vitro fertilization to have my older two kids. So it was a passion of mine because 30 years ago, there were no groups, there was no support. There was very little in terms of the mental health awareness of couples embarking on this journey Mm. and going through bereavement Mm. subsequent to it or even when they've struggled or haven't struggled and losing a baby. So it's something I'm very passionate about. And I think, I mean, we're we're in perfect hands because you have had firsthand experience of this and can, to a large extent, understand some of the emotional challenges, um, you know, that a person would go through. I think to kickstart the conversation, let's talk a little bit about that. What are some of the emotional challenges, um, you know, that an individual or even couples may experience, you know, as they go through the fertility treatment process? And, you know, I think if we link it to infant loss as well, that maybe sometimes they're not successful and so they experience some kind of loss. Let's just unpack it. It's quite a big uh, topic. It is, but in actual fact, the two are very much related because I wanted to be a pediatrician when I was in school. I didn't get into medicine. So I opted to do BSc to try and stream to medicine, and then I got interested in in the link between um, health and and one's emotional well-being. Mm. And I entered the field of fertility originally before I started trying thinking it was a way around that I could go into maternity wards and be around babies <laughs> and into this kind of field where you're going to see new moms and pregnancies and parents and give them good news. And when I joined this field, I realized that the majority of fertility treatment was about loss. Mm. And not only infant loss, but the loss of a dream to be a parent, Mm. the loss of a choice. And I find as the years have passed, Our society has become very much about empowerment. It's become very much about informed decisions Mm. and about choice. 
So we can decide what our sexuality is. We can decide on what gender we are. We can decide our pronouns. Mm. But when it comes to fertility, we have no control. Mm. So we perceive when we're children that either we're going to be parents or we're not. Mm. We think we have the power of the decision to determine I'm not going to be a mother. Mm. And suddenly when that choice is taken away from you, so you then struggle to have kids, mm. then it becomes this huge crisis. Mm. And and so that's why I find the two very much interlinked mm. because when you go through fertility treatment, you don't suddenly start after you've gotten married. You've gone through a few months of loss of hopes and expectations, mm. thinking I'm going to fall pregnant and we're going to try. And then six months pass and a year passes. Mm. And by the time you reach a fertility clinic, you have already gone through recurrent losses, mm. whether they be miscarriages or loss of thinking you're going to be a parent. Mm. If we look at fertility patients, by the time they present to a fertility clinic, and this was startling. We did a lot of research during COVID because we had the time. So we did a lot of literature reviews and realized that by the time someone sits in front of a doctor and says, I have a fertility problem, 40% of them have a diagnosable depression. Mm. And this is diagnosable by the usual psychometric tests we do. A psychiatrist would diagnose it. 40% have a generalized anxiety condition. Mm. And three out of five women report feeling suicidal. Mm. Now, that's high. And remember, one out of six people across the world or six, one out of six couples will experience infertility. Mm. So if you're looking at that, that is a huge percentage. So, so just under half of those people who are presenting to a clinic have already, because of these recurrent losses, are presenting with some kind of psychiatric condition. Hmm. And so they're a very at-risk population. And up until a few years back, were not managed, which then has a whole lot of consequences on the individual and on the couple. Hmm. And that is notwithstanding if they go through infant loss, which we know one out of four people in the world will go through a loss. Hmm. And that's high. That's one out of four people you speak to have gone through a miscarriage, have gone through possibly a stillbirth or what we call a, a NICU or early neonatal death, so hmm. a premature baby dying within the ICU or a late trimester miscarriage. Hmm. One out of four. So it's extremely high, and there's a huge sense of a complicated grief reaction hmm. emerging from both of these conditions, so to speak. I mean, this is, uh, yeah, it, it seems like an emotionally charged experience. And I mean, just listening to you speak about how, uh, you know, the loss can present itself in so many different ways. And, and even if sometimes it's just the loss of the dream to be a parent, etc. Uh, what are some of the common emotions that, you know, individuals may experience uh, during 
you know, trying to to have this child, um, to make that dream come true, the fertility treatments. Um, and then again, linked to that constant, you know, that constant um, Dis- disillusionment and disappointment mm. and and grief. We talk about a grief cycle of infertility, which is very much like losing somebody, losing a baby, losing a partner. You go through five stages of grief. Mm. You go through this shock, denial, and disbelief. Mm. That's originally mm. for about... Two weeks, that's when people are generally planning a funeral and they go through the motions. Mm. Then we go through bargaining where we're trying to make sense of why did this happen. Mm. We get angry, we get depressed, and then there's acceptance. Mm. Now, generally, if you lose someone who is in partnership with you or you've spent some time or some history with, as you move further away from the time of death, so the grief gets a bit lighter. It mm. might never go. Mm. Now imagine infertility. Every month there's mm. hope and expectation mm. that you're going to fall pregnant. Mm. So we start with this big expectation again, and then the last two weeks we're waiting and we're anxious, and then we realize we're not pregnant and we go through a grief cycle. Yeah. And then it starts again. It's relentless. Mm. So what happens is there's never closure on this grief cycle. Mm. It just goes round and round. I describe it to patients like a roller coaster. Mm. You you don't want to get on it. You don't want to go for fertility treatment because it looks very scary. And those dips and those those troughs on that roller coaster look very frightening. But people get off it and mm. they're smiling mm. and they get back in the queue. Mm. But when you get on it, it's relentless. It's mm. like you cannot mm. be but or consumed mm. by what you're going on and by getting on this ride. And there's a whole lot of, of, of subtle emotional changes that mm. happen. And then, of course, if we faced with the loss of a child, and again, I'm saying to the listeners, it doesn't matter if a mother has lost her baby before her six-week heartbeat scan mm. or stillbirth. Yes, we know there are differences because the baby you've been pregnant with longer. But for that mom and that father, it is the worst loss in their world Mm. at that moment. Mm. You cannot discredit that they're going to go through the same grief cycle and they cope very differently. Mm. And Oftentimes, we tend to find that it is the patients who present with fertility problems Mm. will probably have the most losses because, let's face it, they've presented with a fertility problem. Mm. So there's probably something already Mm. that is not in sync. So we know that these patients are more at risk to possibly a premature delivery or bed rest Mm. or a postnatal depression, which I'll explain just now how it relates to mm. to infertility. But the biggest feeling that is across both of those experiences is the sense of helplessness. Mm. If we look at infertility, when patients decide they're going to have a baby, they're usually both on board, right? Mm-hmm. They, they research the topic together. They make a decision as to when they're going to become parents. Mm-hmm. They usually try and get the timing right in terms of 
we've got the financial security, we've got the house, we've got the career. And then they start trying. Mm. And when that doesn't happen, it just creates this whole sense of lack of control, Mm. self-doubt, self-esteem issues. And they give up all their previously unhealthy behaviors to fall pregnant. Mm. And so they try their utmost to control the process. And when it doesn't happen, by the time they present to the doctor, it has been months, if not years, Mm. of erosion on the marriage. Mm. When you lose a baby or you lose the dream of becoming a parent, you grieve into the future. Mm. So that's the difference between losing somebody who who possibly you had a relationship with. Mm. You've got memories with that person. You have recollections as you move further away it you learn to live in harmony Hmm. but when you're grieving into the future that's a big problem because you're grieving what you would have been Mm. you're grieving possibly what your child would have been what age your child would have been you're seeing them the world move forward Mm. and 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 you're kind of held back Mm. And you don't feel you fit in. And that's with infertility and with loss. Mm. And society is not very forgiving on those different stretches of the of the population. And, and we'll come back to this, how society responds to it. I'm just thinking about in your experience, as we continue to delve deeper into these emotions and this roller coaster, as you describe it, that, you know, people experience. In your experience, have you been able to pick up whether there is a difference in terms of, let's say, the experience and the emotional response the woman might have, you know, vis-a-vis the experience of, of the male or between the individual and the couple. What are some of those nuanced responses that, that you've seen? If we look at trying to have a baby, it will generally be motivated a lot by the female. Mm-hmm. In fact, about 80% of the time. And the men tend to say to me, well, it's easy, it's going to happen, we just need to get the timing right, and their mates are all telling them jokes on how to get it right, so they don't take it as seriously. (laughs) And men, I seem to find, are able to compartmentalize having a baby. So if you imagine their brain, they've got a block or a folder for family, Mm. for being a father, Mm. a separate block for hobbies, a separate one for friendships, a separate one for work. But think of the woman having a baby impacts on all of that. Mm. It impacts on what I drink. When do I take maternity leave? Do I fit in at a friend's birthday party? So men can put these, the parenthood or the trying to have a baby in a block and they are more rational and logical thinkers. Mm. So they approach the fertility with wanting to know statistics. Mm. They want to know what is the solution going forward? Mm. What are the statistics of a positive outcome? Mm -hmm. Women are more emotional about that decision. Mm. And again, as time passes and it doesn't happen, men tend to get angry. Mm. Men tend to say, I married you to be with you. I want my wife. And if we don't have children, so long as I've got my wife. But trying to have a baby changes a female 
kind of I'm not saying permanently, but does change her her view of herself as a wife, her view of herself as a, an employee. And what happens is they don't like hearing that. They don't want to hear a solution. They don't want to hear statistics. Mm. They are just wanting this positive outcome and they're wanting emotional support mm. and men want to fix the problem. Mm. So men will listen to the topic, I often say, they will listen to the statistics. They won't want to engage about the emotional feelings around that statistic or around the negative result. Mm. They don't want to engage in that paragraph. And so <laughs> they they do start coping independently. It's the elephant in the room eventually sure. that the woman doesn't address because she knows her husband will maybe get angry or say, we spoke about this plan last week. Why are you talking about it again? Mm. The man was too scared to come home and say, so-and-so is pregnant at work, or yeah. I'm going to go out for a drink, or let's go to a bride this weekend. Mm. So he starts doing things his way, mm. and she does things her way. Mm. And that's when we catch the couples having a difficulty. I often say to people, it is not loss and it is not infertility that creates divorce. Mm. It is the management of that mm. and that independent coping. It's not insurmountable. We can get couples on the same page. But the risk in the marriage comes in. In loss and fertility is when they're coping independently mm. and not turning to one another. Mm. And couples, specifically after loss, the man is often more concerned about how's his wife, how's she going to cope, how's she going to get through this, what can I do to fix this? Mm. And the wife perceives that as a lack of compassion, as a lack of attachment to the baby, mm. as a lack of, of grief. So that often creates discord immediately after loss as well, mm. is he's trying to pull her up mm. and she's – right here at the bottom. And an interesting phenomenon happens is that as we help the woman feel stronger after her grief mm. or after her fertility journey, the man almost gets given a bit of permission to be a little bit vulnerable and suddenly then you see those emotions emerging. Mm. And that's the sign of a good marriage, really. As one is coping, the other one's vulnerable, and it does swap and change. Mm. And ultimately, we want to say to couples, we need to get you on the same page. And that's where we strive towards with with grief, mm. with fertility, with being on the same page. And of course, I mean, we all ultimately want to get to that better place. But if I go back to some of what you'd said, and I'm thinking specifically about when you described the scenario of, you know, one goes one direction and the other goes another because there's just so much complexity. You know, the question I then have is, does this have an impact in terms of mental health? Do, do we see this impacting the mental health? I imagine the isolation could have an impact as well. Yes. And and what are some of the ways that you assist, you know, those couples or those individuals that you've worked with to address some of those mental health concerns? The one thing we're trying to put across to fertility clinics, and I think we're putting it across pretty strongly at the moment, mm. is every new presenting couple to a practice needs to speak to a counselor or a fertility coordinator 
as an introduction to what they're going to go through. Mm. That way we get them hopefully on the same page in terms of our expectations, but also on the same page in terms of how far are we willing to pursue this. Ideally, I would like that addressed in premarital counseling mm. or pre-relationship or with the gynae or obstetrician when he recognizes there may be a problem, mm. is to say how far are we willing to take this, mm. is then also to understand what is the value to each of you of having a child? What value do you ascribe to it? Is it because you want to be a nurturer? Mm. Is it because this is expected of you? Is it an achievement? And then to make the journey very predictable. Mm. It's very hard to run a comrades marathon. Not that I've ever run a step <laughs> in my <laughs> life. But <laughs> if you know that you're running from Peter Marisburg to Durban and you're thinking of, of Durban and entering Durban, mm. it's hard to run that marathon of 90Ks or however long it is without actually saying, let me get past this first 15Ks. Let yes. me get past this hill. Let mm. me get past this next peak. Mm. So breaking it up into manageable parts. Mm. And if couples could do that, so make the journey predictable in conjunction with their fertility coordinator or their obstetrician, where you're given a realistic time frame to achieve a pregnancy and then you know this is the next step. Mm. Predictability and routine makes for a whole lot of security mm. in, in individuals. We know that. I love that. And I think what I'm also hearing you say is the importance of effective communication, um, which assists in terms of really making that journey predictable. Uh, we know exactly what we're dealing with here. Take me through the ways in which you would suggest to couples to really kind of communicate in more effective ways as they navigate, uh, you know, the challenges of of you know, either fertility treatments or after infant loss? My advice would be is before you even get married, and this is where I always say I hope couples are still going through premarital counseling, mm. is just that simple question is, do I want kids? Mm. I have many couples coming into sessions where the husband says, when I met my wife, she didn't want children. And now she's changed her mind. And this is a big thing that we see happening lately is years ago, it was all about broodiness. It was all about I want a baby mm. because I want to hold a baby and I want to be a mother. And we socialize that way. Mm. More and more, I'm seeing women make the active choice. They don't want to be parents originally. Mm. But as time passes and they hit their late 30s, mm early 40s, the value of having children has changed. It's no longer about being broody. They're not the kind of women who go and pick up other people's babies, but they are driven women, they have a sense of achievement, and suddenly this becomes a sense of failure for them. Mm. So the value subtly changes around why I thought I didn't want kids, and now that the choice is taken away, now I do. Mm. So is to discuss that choice up front. Mm. And then with your obstetrician, and I always think it's important, or your GP, is to say, we're trying to have children and give yourself a realistic timeline. World Health Organization and the European boards and SASREC to a degree say, 
really infertility is about a year of unprotected sex. A year of unprotected sex and recurrent losses is going to create a whole lot of emotional distress. Mm. If if after one month a couple is battling and already they're presenting with depression, acrimony, conflict, then it's time to go and seek advice. Mm. As soon as it becomes all-consuming, mm. whether it's been one month or six months, mm. go and seek advice. Mm. You don't need to follow that advice, but go and check what's happening. I mean, I like that. Um, it, <laughs> I'm, I'm thinking about um, there's there's a friend, a, a couple friend of mine, um, who I think w- were trying for for a number of years, and I just watched how it contributed to the disintegration of of their marriage ultimately. Um, mm. And I love what you're saying about you know even if it is just like a month. And you're seeing that this is contributing to some kind of breakdown within the context of the relationship itself. Go and, and seek that professional medical help. The worst it can do is give you peace of mind mm. that everything or the, or the best it can do is peace of mind mm. that everything's okay. Mm. Go and give it a couple more months. The worst it can do is find out something that's medically wrong. Mm. But then you can go and do something about it. Mm. So my daughter's 24. She's now 25. She's always had endometriosis. She's always had ups. From when she was 20, I thought we need to check how many eggs she's got left. Mm. And, and I'll get to that now as a cause of infertility. We didn't do that. We gave it a bit more time. It was lockdown. And last year, I said to her when she was 24, let's just check, Mm. never assuming it was going to be a problem. And she doesn't mind me disclosing this, but we we picked up that she has the egg reserve, which is number of eggs, of a 43-year-old. She's only 24. Mm. Now, that is daunting for any 24-year-old to know because her future might be donor eggs. Her future might be very compromised in terms of fertility. But imagine she had gotten married at 30. She's a CA. Hmm. Then she had settled down for three years. And then she had discovered that she wouldn't have known that for 13 years this has been a problem. Hmm. Whereas now we're more empowered to make use of science and Hmm. say, okay, we Hmm. know this is a problem. Hmm. Let's see what we can do Hmm. before it erodes another 13 years down the line and it becomes a bigger issue. And I think it connects to your earlier point as well, where you said what you want to do is, is is to make the journey predictable almost. And so I have a sense of certainty. I know what's going on. And therefore, I am empowered to be able to decide what next steps look like. And because infertility, the big theme is loss of control and helplessness. Mm. How else can we feel empowered except to take it into our own hands? Mm. We cannot control what happens in a laboratory. Mm. We cannot control that AVF would never or conception will never be 100%. Mm. A very important and interesting fact is if you put a healthy couple of 26 years of age, they both got no health conditions and you let them have intercourse, they will only fall pregnant one out of four months. So Everyone thinks I've had two months of unprotected intercourse. It hasn't happened. 
or I've had a year of unprotected intercourse. Mm. Even if we put a healthy couple together, it's going to, mm. whether it be a religious reason, whether it be an evolutionary reason, mm. there's only a 25% chance of falling pregnant. Mm. But if you go to a fertility clinic or a, a specialist, most of the procedures have a far higher success rate mm. than natural conception. Okay. So it gives us some peace of mind that there is science has come quite a long way to help facilitate that. Let's let's go to to an earlier point you made, uh, where you started to talk a little bit about the causes of of infertility. Uh, you said you want to come back even to the point about uh, postnatal depression and how this contributes to infertility. Just help us understand, you know, how how does one get to the place where this is what the diagnosis is? Well. The definition, like I said, is a year of unprotected intercourse. Mm. Or if you have a history of something like polycystic ovaries, Mm. if you've got a history of tubal disease, Mm -hmm. which I must say in South Africa, not as prevalent, but if you look at Africa Mm -hmm. and you look at the developing world, the main cause of infertility is tubal disease. Tubal. Tubal. So that means... Your egg travels from your ovary down your tubes when you ovulate into your your uterus. Mm -hmm. If there's tubal disease, it means that there's damage in in one or both tubes, so they're closed Mm. or they're inflamed Mm. or there's been maybe a sexually transmitted illness or there's been some sort of mechanical problem that has made this impossible. Mm. That is the first and the biggest cause of why people would need IVF. Okay. But if we look in general, like in South Africa, endometriosis, big one. If you know you've got endometriosis, is possibly go and see a doctor in order to just manage it. Mm. Um, endometriosis is abnormal bleeding into into the lining of the womb, and mm. it can spread. And we've got a big hypothesis that if you don't manage your stress, it actually dysregulates the immune system and and creates more of a problem. So there's something we can do about that then. Mm. If there's a history of cancer, Mm. never mind if there's not been chemo or radiation, any oncology history, you know, don't wait the six months, rather go and get some sort of diagnosis before. A big cause would be a simple test, a blood test which measures how many eggs do you have left. Women's egg number. We're born with millions of eggs and they're finite. From the minute you're born as a female, these eggs, obviously when you menstruate, you're losing hundreds of eggs per month. Mm-hmm. And they never replenish. You can't replenish eggs. It's a finite number. But it decreases from about the age of 28 Once you hit 35, those numbers drop even more drastically. Mm -hmm. And from 40, even more so. So maybe at 40, 42, you've got 10% left of what you would have had or 10% chance of conceiving. Hmm. If you're over the age of 35, you know, that's where you don't wait six months because your eggs now have decreased in quality, Mm. but also quantity. Mm. But if you are... A 22-year-old and you're curious and you're about to embark on a big career, Mm. I am saying to patients, instead of, in hindsight, regretting that you didn't test it, for your peace of mind, go and get that blood test done. 
maybe ask your doctor to check what your egg reserve is. Mm-hmm. Check your general hormones so that you can go and pursue your career. Mm-hmm. Or if they pick up a problem, you have the option of freezing your eggs, mm. which is relatively new compared to IVF. Mm. And by relatively new, over a decade old, but in in corporate women or women whose egg number is declining, we can remove those eggs at the age of 26 Mm. and let them pursue their careers, let them find a partner. And 10 years down the line, we've got eggs that are the age of what you were when you were 26. Okay. And so where would I go to to get this egg reserve or, you know, this blood test where they're able to determine what my egg reserve is? Generally, gynecologist, but oftentimes, or or you could go to your GP, but then interpretation is, (laughs) is somewhat... You know, we can Google it. We can limit it. It's limited to what specialist looks at it. Mm. In my opinion, it's best to go maybe to a fertility clinic or a once-off consult or blood tests. And there is at Steve Biko, there are a variety mm. where it's not a private clinic where you can maybe get some baseline of what is that blood test. Mm. And all my basics like thyroid my insulin, mm. my diet, is all of that okay? Mm. Just to give you that peace of mind. Mm. I, I, I'm enjoying that we, we did take a bit of a segue. So we did do a little bit of a detour going into the causes and, and then I think you're empowering us with, with um, you know, the ways in which, uh, you know, the, if somebody wants to, to explore um, you know, having a child, but perhaps might go, it's not something I want for myself right now, that there are options mm-hmm. available to them. And of course, some of those developments um, scientifically uh, that have taken place. I, I do want to bring us back um, to, to, to the conversation around kind of navigating those emotions as somebody then is actually going through um, you know, fertility treatment and infant loss. And specifically, I'm now thinking about, you know, some of the, the strategies for coping. I'm thinking about the support that can be provided by family and friends. So, so if we're thinking about this couple or this individual that's navigating those emotions, maybe let's start with kind of the support family can provide. What can they do to support those who are undergoing some of this, you know, deeply distressing emotional, uh, you know, challenges and experiences? I would love to say do nothing unless <laughs> somebody asks you for advice. The biggest trigger or hook that a fertility patient has is when people say to them, when are you having a baby? Have you tried this doctor? Have you tried that doctor? Why is it not happening for you? Or thank goodness you don't have kids. You don't know what it's about. Mm. You might not realize it, but if if that woman is battling or that couple's battling to have a child, mm. if they haven't given you that information, do you not think they haven't explored the options? They don't want that advice. I I took a brochure from Resolve, which mm. is an American fertility support group, and I, I changed it to South African context. Mm. Where when I see a patient, I say, just email this link, and mm. it's written in a very nice way saying, please do not ask why I'm not pregnant. Do not ask what I've done. Do not ask any questions unless I volunteer this information. 
Even if even if it's a well-meaning, how, how are things going? Because again, sometimes, you, I mean, you're concerned. You're 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 also wishing the the best for them. Is it is it not okay just to check in? How is it going? I have seen <laughs> couples write off friendships, okay. write off family members because of the questions, because the reaction you're going to get is either angry okay or you're going to get dismissive or you're going to get some sort of justification or defensiveness mm. back from this person who's really struggling so if someone doesn't offer what they're doing fertility wise don't offer any advice more so than when someone has a newborn i'm saying you can give them a bit of advice but do not give a fertility patient any advice unless they ask. Hmm. It, it it has created so many ends of relationships that I have seen. So Even you don't though, broach the subject unless the person themselves is 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 volunteers that information. Absolutely. Okay. Absolutely. And the thing is, couples are often on different pages. The one is more willing to speak mm. about it, mm. and oftentimes the men aren't. Hmm. Or they might be worried about how they're going to be teased about, I mean, we hear about shooting blanks or mm. who's to blame or who's who's at fault. Mm. And they don't want it raised. So if you're going to ask her, mm. ask her privately mm. and say you don't need to give me any information, but I am here if you need to talk. Mm. Leave it at that. Mm-hmm. Just show your compassion with I am here but try not to elicit any answers I imagine you would you would apply the same sort of rationale to a situation where you know an individual or a couple was then experiencing infant loss I'm going to kind of disagree there okay. so so I'm part of a group called empty wombs which is a, a non-profit organization mm-hmm. it expresses loss through art and making of what we call hope boxes for other moms who have lost babies. Mm -hmm. And their big slogan is, say my baby's name. Hmm. And I get shivers. I saw a mom this morning. Two years ago, she lost her baby in a stillbirth at 37 weeks. Mm. And we were talking, and she's only now decided to come and deal with it. Mm. And I said to her halfway through the session, I said, have you ever thought of trying for a second baby? And she started crying. She said, nobody has ever acknowledged that my daughter existed and that my new baby, if I had one, would be my second child. Mm. And so I find with parents who have lost a baby, the worst thing you can do is not acknowledge their Mm. loss. The worst thing. Not ask what their baby's name is. Not ask. And and again, I'm not saying go into the detail. I'm not saying go into why did you lose your baby? When are you trying again? Mm. But if if you lost your dad and I didn't say to you the next time I saw Mm. you is I am sorry for your loss. Mm. That's as much as you want to hear from me. Mm. If you don't say that for someone's baby, Mm. it's dreadful. That's like saying I don't acknowledge that you've you you lost your father. Mm. It is just a normal, appropriate reaction to anyone who has died. And their baby 
has died. There is no nice way to say it. And when we talk in these groups, it is moms who all share or have in common baby loss. And we talk about, use the right terms. Your baby died, didn't pass away. It's not an angel. Those are fluffy words that people say to be comfortable with that loss themselves. Mm. So no, in infant loss and miscarriage and stillbirth, absolutely you say something. You acknowledge the loss. You don't need to know detail. Mm. And so to family and friends, that's that's what you're saying, yes. that it's important that you acknowledge that there is a life here that has been yes. lost. And that life coexists mm. with that mother and that father indefinitely. They have always been a mom to that child. That child always exists as their oldest or as one of their children. Mm. Maybe not as much when it's an early miscarriage, like mm. it's six weeks or first trimester. Mm. But as it gets beyond that and there's a, a narrative and a, a character building of that baby, mm. that person's a mom and mm. they're a dad. And so as a family member, I often say, please make a note of the due date of the baby, of the day the baby died, mm. on your calendar, on your phone. Because what these moms often say to me is, I maybe got support immediately after the loss, mm. but do they not think that my first Christmas was difficult? Do they not think on Mother's Day to actually acknowledge my loss? And quite honestly, had I not gone through a loss or had I not worked with these women, hmm. I would not have known that actually they want very much an anniversary down the line hmm. when their child would have started grade seven hmm. or matric. They want you to remember that, not just to bury it. Hmm. So to family and friends, make a note of that date. Hmm. And they, they are, in October, we have the wave of light which you light a candle, there's a certain day in October around the world, between 7 and 9 p.m., mm -hmm. any baby that's lost, your support can be shown by lighting a candle and posting it on social media and sharing it across the world. And this light then, be given time zones, it carries on for 24 hours. Mm. And if you don't know how to acknowledge that loss, mm. the simple looking at that day of remembrance and that significance of the wave of light, you take a photo of a candle lit hmm. and you send it to the mom. No words. No words. You don't need to say anything. Hmm. That's just saying I'm with you and I'm not sure what to say. <sighs> I mean, this is, this is really, this is not easy. These are not easy things to navigate. No. And I think on, on both sides, mm. you know, both on the side, so on the side of, of the person who's either you know, undergoing the process of, of trying to have a baby and having to go the route of fertility treatments. But, but also on the other side of those who want the best for you, who, who really want, you know, for the procedure to be a success, who want a successful outcome. Mm -hmm. And again, in, you know, in the instance of, of a loss, of infant loss, where it's hard on you as the person who's lost the baby, but also how does one navigate it if you're providing support from the other side? Mm -hmm. And again, I would say with loss, we're all uncomfortable in dealing with loss. Mm. More so when we didn't meet the child or we're not sure if the mom's going to cry. She's going to cry. Mm. When you acknowledge it, she's going to cry. 
That is the depth of what she feels. And we need to be comfortable, which is hard, with just saying, I'm so sorry for your loss Mm. and allowing that mom to express her emotions. Mm. If it means she gets angry, she's not angry at you, she's angry at the loss. Mm. If it means she's tearful, it Mm. doesn't mean she's going to drop down and die right then and there. She's tearful because you acknowledge that Mm. loss. And that means the world to her. Mm. Yeah, yeah. I've just thought about another <laughs> friend mm-hmm. um, who's actually navigating the exact same thing. And, and she uses um, Facebook um, as kind of her outlet. Yes. Um, and she's really just every day kind of just, you know, and some days she's, she's doing better and some days are incredibly challenging and you can hear the anger um, at the world and at the situation and, you know, the, the underlying deeply embedded pain that I think she goes through. Um, having think, lost a baby, I think at six months. So he yeah. was six months old. Um, wow. and so she bonded, I think, with the baby Absolutely. as well. So I hear what you're saying about the importance of that acknowledgement. Mm. Um, and, and some of the different ways in which one can offer support. I love this idea of wave of light, you said, mm. uh, where there's, where there's the lighting of a candle. And sometimes you don't need to say words. It's just about yeah. kind of sending that gesture, which is enough in and of itself. Absolutely. Please, can you just remind me of the organization? that you said you belong to? It's an organization called Empty Wombs. Empty Wombs. Empty Wombs. Okay. The nice thing about the organization is a lot of lost moms will not go and speak to a therapist Mm. and they do not perceive that somebody else will understand them. Mm. And I can understand that. If I lost my child, I'm not going to a therapist that hasn't lost a child. If, If I lose my husband, I want to go to compassionate friends where other women have lost their husbands. Mm. So these women formed an organization informally Mm. where they meet and they create memories. So all of them have gone through loss Mm. and they create memories because remember when you've lost a baby or a pregnancy loss, you have no... You have no live baby. Maybe you have ashes if you were fortunate enough that the the hospital allowed you to do that because there are laws around that. And... And so you create a box in which you as the mom pay it forward. Mm. You, you, it's called a hope box and it's all the hopes and desires. There's a candle in it. Mm. There's a coffee mug. There's a chocolate. And it was all formed by a mom called Alicia who lost her baby, um, near full term and had nothing to show for it. And she realized she wanted something sweet after the C-section. So she adds a nougat in it. She wanted a cup of coffee. She wanted bath salts. Mm. Is a little book where she could write down her feelings. Mm. And this organization has grown and they meet once a month where I'll go and give talks, but nobody needs to speak about their loss. Mm. We sit there making boxes for other moms going through losses. And if you want to talk about your baby, you can. But you're all in that same space of compassion and I get where you're at. Mm. And And the benefit I see is... Moms are able to see that other moms are healing. So you enter the group and you think this is never, I'm, I, I, I just want to die. I'm never going to get over this. Mm. And you come along. It's held at a restaurant called Gia's because um, there's someone called Michelle Grunewald and Saskia Williams who, who have, have kind of taken this very formally forward. And they congregate there and bring their husbands with. They bring their mothers with sometimes. Mm. 
and their, their siblings where no words are needed. And that's an important way that they can also acknowledge that I can never understand your lies, but I mm. can sit here mm. and make a box mm. with you and pass it forward to the next one because you write a little message in the box giving someone hope that you'll be able to coexist alongside your grief. Mm. I mean, these are, these are, these are powerful um, coping strategies, um, powerful approaches even. We might even call them therapeutic approaches. And specifically, I think they relate to the instance then of infant loss. What are what are strategies and even therapeutic approaches that we might then offer to those who are experiencing challenges, emotional challenges in the case of fertility treatments? In terms of that is, again, let's break up the way forward into manageable parts. Mm -hmm. Let us see that we both have the same goals going forward. Mm -hmm. Let's see, you know, all couples and with fertility treatment, you want a line in the sand. Mm. You don't want to see your life going relentlessly through cycle after cycle Mm. with no end. Mm. I get couples to do a goal list. So I get them as a couple. I use a whiteboard so that they can all see it. We write down five-year goals Mm. off the top of your head, one-year goals Mm. and three-month goals. Mm. And then we merge them together with a fertility plan. When you're going through infertility, the thing is it becomes all-consuming. You need hormone treatment. You need injections. You need um, to visit the doctor. Mm. And so that becomes your sole focus, and you forget about – your career or moving job or visiting family or going on holiday because this route's expensive. Mm. So we rather get all those goals together as a couple and then a fertility plan and merge them so that if pregnancy doesn't happen next month, Mm. there's a couple of other goals that at least are happening in the interim. Mm. So that is such an important technique. And as they navigate all of this, I mean, do do you have any self-care strategies that you would then, you know, suggest or recommend a person put into place? Because I imagine that this also becomes important and it links up to that earlier conversation about the impact on mental health. We all know with mental health, diet and sleep is important. Mm. But those two have also shown, especially diet, important in terms of Insulin levels, which has an impact on on your egg quality mm. and your ovulation. So eating healthy, and that doesn't mean a strict vegan diet or mm. a strict avoiding anything that's not organic, mm. but a kind of a, a healthy eating plan. Then definitely sleep because the less sleep we have, the more it's going to play down on your resilience Mm. and then we look at saying what are healthy habits you can instill such as exercise and and again we're not saying go and run marathons and we're not saying you've got to be super fit Mm. exercise for me is i hate it so for me to go to the gym (laughs) i think um the only reason people enjoy the end of a gym session is because it's finished Mm. but for some people it's because they actually feel the serotonin goes up. Mm. So if you feel that going to yoga, going to gym, going to a wine club or a book club mm. makes you feel better mm. or practicing some relaxation audio, then do what makes you feel better, whether the science exists that this is going to work or not. Mm. 
Infertility is a lot related to stress and mm. the management of stress. Mm. Couples who are stressed or women who are stressed have a one out of three chance, let's say, of a fertility program working. If they manage their stress, mm. they have a two to two and a half times out of three of that program, that same program working. Okay. So there's a lot to be said in a process that is so disempowering if you can manage diet stress exercise mm. you are 60 percent of the way there and then science can dictate the rest and in the instance of infant loss what are some of those um self-care strategies that might assist somebody who's who's dealing with the overwhelm of of infant loss infant loss i really encourage obstetricians, first of all, or doctors mm. to make contact with a therapist who deals with this or an organization because mm. not everyone can afford a therapist, but an organization where they like empty wombs, where a bereavement counselor would come to you mm. and bring a box. So first port of call. Secondly is to say to the patient, we really recommend that you speak to someone mm. And then to normalize what the couple is going through. Hmm. No couple will see me, very few will see me at the ward at the hospital or straight away. They're first processing that grief through that shock and disbelief. So you've got to almost normalize that for them hmm. and say it's okay. For now, you're going to withdraw from everyone. Hmm. Then you're going to try and bargain. You're going to want to see your obstetrician. You're going to want to know what happened. Then you're going to get angry at one another as a couple. Mm. And then you're going to be down. Mm. So if we normalize the grief process for a couple, it's not this big surprise when suddenly they're fighting mm. or when suddenly they are not wanting to get out of bed. Mm. You can normalize the way going forward exists for the couple. And I think, again, the power of this is that you're, you're now also, I suppose, speaking to the role that clinicians, etc., you know, must play in assisting this individual or this couple to navigate uh, the experience of, of infant loss. As I come to the end of the conversation, are there any parting words that you want to, you know, share as we close out what has been, I mean, it's an emotionally charged conversation. It's quite a heavy topic. Both ways. Yeah. You know. So I think because fertility and infertility is so disempowering, mm. as an individual, you need to find other mechanisms that will help you feel a bit more in control mm. while this is not in control and make use of science. Mm. Because you put your head in the sand. You know, a lot of people have religious beliefs as to why they shouldn't maybe pursue even questions in science. Mm. And I believe that any religion or any medical science is put there by someone for us to utilize. It's either going to work or it's not going to work. Mm. So rather empower yourself to go and look at those options. And with infant loss is that I know it's the most devastating and mm. worst loss in the world. Mm. There's nothing worse than losing a child mm. and grieving into the future. But I need you to know that you will eventually learn to coexist. Mm. But it takes longer than a, a normal grief cycle, mm. which is generally six months. Mm. And you're more at risk for a complicated grief reaction. Mm. But if you seek 
support, whether it be online, these big support groups online, mm. or whether it be with an individual or someone you trust, mm. you can learn to coexist in terms of the baby that you have lost. Mm. And it needn't be the demise of your marriage. Everyone thinks that. Mm. If we lose a child, that's the worst thing that can happen to our marriage. It will never survive it. Mm. It's not true. Mm. A lot, if we're given the right skills and we, we kind of guide it through the process, mm. it can be the best strength mm. you've got in mm. your relationship going forward. Ooh. And on that note, um, let me just say thank you. Thank you for not just, I suppose, your expert knowledge in the subject, but I think you bring incredible uh, empathy and compassion into the conversation as well. So thank you. Thank, thank you for so having much. the conversation uh, with me. Thank you. Thank you for listening to the Hashtag Fairing Pod. Join the conversation by following us on social media. We are on Facebook, Instagram and YouTube under Fairing South Africa. Have you been diagnosed with IBD? Download the Fairing IBD Health Diary app today. The Fairing IBD Health Diary app is available on the Apple App Store and the Android Google Play Store.